Recording in progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha. We have a brand new Torah portion this week. Brand new discussion. Always fun to get in on, on a Monday morning. Uh, today is Monday, June 13th, 2022. Torah portion this week is Beha'aloscha. And the opening conversation is about the menorah. So the Torah portions in the Book of Numbers, Book of Amidbar, are very interesting. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stories, a lot of um, mitzvot, a lot of narrative. It's you get a nice uh, collection, a nice potpourri, as it were, of uh, of conversations. So this is no exception, and uh, this week is no exception. And we're going to start with a conversation about the menorah, that uh, very famous temple. Kaylee, Temple Vessel. All right, let's jump right in. I'm going to share my screen with you. And hold on, where are we? Here we go. Let me share my screen and let's get rolling. All right, Baaloscha or Baalotcha, reading number one, Numbers chapter eight, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him. Now, the first thing we have, before we even continue, is that God is telling Moses to tell Aaron, of course, Aaron is the high priest, so we can imagine that the commandment or the conversation is going to be something related to the Kohanim, to the priests. And indeed, it is. So the message is like this. When you light the lamps, that means when you kindle the menorah, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. When you light the lamps, the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. What does that mean? What is the face of the menorah? What does it mean that the seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah? So here's what you need to know. Number one, um, the menorah was, um, unlike our Chanukiyot, our Chanukah menorahs that have nine cups, as it were, nine candle holders, the, uh, the, the, the temple, the Mishkan's menorah, and the temple, temple's menorah, only had seven branches, seven, um, um, seven uh, distinct um, areas to light. Give me one second. Okay, so there were seven. So there was a center branch and three branches coming out from either side. That is the way that it worked. Um, Hold on, hold on. Okay, I'm going to actually pull up a picture, Rambam Menorah, that I want to share with you. We've discussed this before, but it's uh, I think it's um, it's nice to see it actually in uh, in the real deal. So I'm going to put a I'm going to share my screen and show you. A depiction of this. Take a look at your screen. Okay, here's a website that's showing a, um, a model of the Rambam's menorah. So you see here on the left, there is a, a golden menorah. And on the right, um, you have the Rambam sketch, Maimonides sketch of the menorah. And, um, and that is the diagonal, you see the diagonal instead of the curved lines, 
you see this, uh, this diagonal. Typically, the menorah, many people depict it as having curved branches, but Maimonides, Rambam, he, he depicts it, he draws it as having um, diagonals. What you see here, though, in the picture, whether it's the hand-drawn version of Maimonides or this replica in gold, is, um, is that there are seven cups, one, two, three, and then on the right side, one, two, three, and then one in the center, and they're all equal, equi- not equidistant, but they're all equally the same height. The reason for that is because unlike our Chanukiyot that have a center branch that's taller, it's not part of the mitzvah, it's, you know, the ninth branch, the Shamish, in the temple, all seven were part of the mitzvah, were all part of the, uh, the core obligation. Um... So that is, um, that is that. Now, if we get back to our Torah reading, so the Torah tells us, God tells Moses to tell Aaron that all seven lamps shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah. So what does that mean? So now we know that there are seven lamps because we've seen the, the, the depiction straight from Imani's own handwriting and from this, uh, this model. What does it mean that they shall cast their light toward the face of the menorah? Um, and so what the... Commentaries explain, uh, at least one understanding is, that the all seven lamps should be facing, when you, when you turn the wicks, they should all be facing toward the center branch. So I'll show you what that means. So look at the golden depiction of the menorah over here. right? So imagine that these cups at the top are filled with oil. And in these oil-filled cups, you have a wick. So where does the wick, where is the wick placed? On which side? On the right side, on the left side. So essentially, according to one understanding, the wicks are always placed toward the middle, right? On this side, this side, this side, the left. So on the right side, on the, for the right-hand cups, the wicks are on the left side. And on the left-hand cups, the wicks are on the right side to face that middle, to face that middle branch. Um, let's continue inside. Torah continues, verse number three. Aaron did so. He lit the lamps toward the face of the menorah as the Lord had commanded Moses. All the candles were lit toward the center, toward the face of the menorah, as God had commanded Moses. Now, this was the form of the menorah. This is going to sound very familiar because we've talked about the uh, the shape and the style and the design of the menorah and how it was made already two books ago in the book of Exodus, but here it's repeated. The menorah was made of hammered work of gold. That means that it's one solid chunk of gold hammered out into its shape. From its base to its flower, it was hammered work. That means from the bottom to the design, to the intricacy of the design. Again, just pulling this up, you see different designs, different design shapes and styles. All of that hammered out of one piece of gold. According to the form that the Lord had shown Moses, so did he construct the menorah. Okay, and there's a lot to talk about this. Um, and in fact, that's how the, the, these few verses are about the menorah. And then we move on to another conversation, so it's now time to pull up Rashi. Okay, let's, let's look at some Rashi here. Um, Rashi immediately asked the question, why in the world are we talking about the menorah? You know, how does this fit into the previous Torah portions? How does this fit into what we were just talking about? So take a look at this. Rashi opens up um, and focuses on the word Baha'aloscha when you light. And Rashi asks, why is the portion dealing with the menorah, and there's this section that we're studying now, juxtaposed to the portion dealing with the chieftains. Let me explain. The end of last week's Torah portion, we read about how the heads, the chieftains, it's a bit of an archaic word, how the heads, the leaders, the princes of of each of the 12 tribes, how they brought offerings in the first 12 days of the temple's opening, they brought offerings every day to inaugurate 
the temple, to inaugurate the Mishkan, to inaugurate the altar. So, and, and on the heels or following that conversation, we now have a conversation about the menorah. What's the connection between the end of last week's Torah portion and the beginning of this week's Torah portion? What's the connection between the chieftains, the, uh, the Nisim, the heads of the tribes and their, their donation, and the menorah? Take a look at the answer. It's unbelievable. For when Aaron saw the dedication offerings of the chieftains, remember, each of the 12 days, they were bringing offerings, gold, uh, silver bowls and basins and gold spoons and flour and oil and animals. When he saw all of this, he felt distressed over not joining them in this dedication, neither he nor his tribe. Remember, the 12 tribes that donated or the 12 tribal leaders that donated, donated from the 12 tribes aside from Shevet Levi, aside from the Levites. Menashe and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, was split into, they were split into two tribes, and thus that compro, um, comprised or composed the, the, the 12 tribes. The tribe of Levi was not counted. They were not involved in this. They were not involved in the dedication, gifts, or offerings. And so when Aaron saw all of this, he felt distressed. Every day of the 12 days, there was like a celebration, and every tribal leader brought a gift, a whole elaborate gift. And what about Levi? What about the tribe of Levi? What about Aaron himself? Nothing. Garnished. He felt distressed. So God said to him, by your life, that's a way of like, I promise, yours is greater than theirs. He says to him, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I know, God says to Aaron, I know you're not involved in these 12 days of offerings, but your role, your portion, your whatever is greater than theirs. For you will light and prepare the for you will light and prepare the lamps. In other words, although they're bringing the offerings for twelve days, you will light the lamps. What does that mean? How is that a consolation? Let's understand this. How is that a consolation? Remember, Rashi is bringing from the Medrash an unbelievable thing that that Aaron felt bad. He felt left out. He was feeling a little depressed, a little sad. He says, "Look, they're all, they're having all the fun. What do I get to do?" Right. Sounds like, uh, you know, FOMO, as they call it, right? He's uh, not only fear of missing out, he's actually, it's distress of missing out. It's DOMO, right? He's actually distressed about being left out. Rosh Chodesh Nisan comes around, the temple, the, the ribbon cutting of the, of the tabernacle happens. Judah, Nachshon Ben Aminadav, he brings the gift for, for, uh, uh, as a leader of Judah. The next day is Yisachar, then Zvulun. Every day you have another tribe and another tribal offering. What about him? What about his tribe? Zero representation. So God tells him, don't worry. Take it easy. Don't stress out. Yours is greater than theirs. You know, you know what we say in, uh, in music? Um, in, uh, in music, there's a, there's a notion called a one-hit wonder. May also be in film in Hollywood. I'm not sure, but I know in music you have these guys like these um, pop stars. They make one song, it gets to the top of the charts, and then you never you never hear from them again. A one hit wonder. They had one hit, and that's it. Got done. Hashem is telling Aaron. God is telling Aaron. Listen, take it easy. Don't be too distressed. Don't be depressed. Don't be jealous. It's fine. They're gonna have one day. One day to bring an offering, right? You, you have the lamps. You have the menorah. That's why he starts with the menorah. God is telling him laws regarding the menorah to remind him, 
you have the menorah. But it goes deeper than that. It goes much deeper than, you know, uh, menorah versus offerings or consolation. Like they have one day and you have many days. It, 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 there's a little bit more depth. Think about it. They were bringing, uh, the Nisim, the, the tribal leaders were bringing offerings. Flour and oil offerings. They were bringing, oh, Ketorah, I forgot. Ketorah, they brought incense. They brought animals. And what about today? What about today? In 2022, you can't bring a flower offering, you can't bring an incense offering, and you can't bring an animal offering. Why? There's no temple. And what about the menorah? What about lighting the menorah? That we still have to this day. I know it's not the same. I even literally started today's session by talking about how the the Hanukkah menorah is nine and this is seven. But the concept of lighting candles still exists. Hashem tells Aaron, your mission of lighting candles, of lighting the lamps, not candles, lighting lamps, that mission, that job will live on for eternity. Even after the temple is no longer, even after the sacrificial service has stopped, the menorah service will continue, and that will always be attributed to you. And so what we see here is something powerful. Um, What we see here. And by the way, I believe that the Chashmanoyim, the Maccabees, the heroes of the story of Hanukkah, pretty sure they were Kohanim. So it fits that the, the ones that established the holiday were indeed of the lineage of Aaron, who's told that your descendants will, that, that this will go on, lighting the lamps will be your consolation, or your, uh, your um, it'll lift your spirits because it's something that's going to happen for eternity. So essentially, God tells Aaron, Yes, they may be offering sacrifices. It's only one day. It's not the whole time. You still have plenty of, a, you still have your role as the, as the priest and the high priest in the, in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle. But you also have the job of lighting the menorah and that never ends. Okay, I hope that makes sense. That's the opening Rashi. Let's jump back inside. And let's take a look at the next Rashi, which is also in the same word, when you light. In Hebrew, it's one word, Bahaloscha, Bahaloscha, when you light. Rashi says, Literally, the meaning of baloscha is when you cause to ascend. Baloscha means when you raise, when you lift up, or when you cause the other to be lifted up. Listen to this. Since the flame rises, Scripture describes kindling in terms of ascending. It doesn't say, I was going to say it doesn't say when you light, but it's literally here in the English. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say when you light. It says when you cause to ascend. When you raise, because flames rise. And so lighting, euphemistically, is called raising. When you raise the lamps, means when you light them. He is required to kindle the lamp until the flame rises by itself. I'm telling you, every word of Rashi here in these opening Rashis is like you could fabrang for, uh, you know, for a whole night on. He says, what, he says to Aaron, to the high priest, what is your role? What is your task? What is your mission? To kindle the lamp until the flame rises, the key words here are by itself. Simply that means when you're lighting the candle, when you're lighting the lamp, don't light it and pull it away before the flame is held. Well, because then you'll have to go back and relight it. I think we've all lit candles in such a way. You lit the candle and then you move on and then you realize the candle just blows out. It just goes out. It never, it never caught on. You have to hold... Keep the fire there until it's a self-sustaining fire. That's the point. Ad 
Until the shalheves, until the flame rises on its own, by itself, on its own. And the powerful message is, of course, not just about lamps, but about us, about people. And any anyone who's involved in inspiring or educating someone else, the message rings loud and clear and true. And that is, give that person, give your mentee, give your student, Give the other person the tools to stand up on their own two feet. Give the person, give the other person the means to be successful, whether it's academically, whether it's emotionally, whether it's psychologically, whether it's spiritually, all of the above, right? Give the person the tools to be successful without you. Not that you should always have to be the one feeding, but that they should be able to, to rise by themselves. And stand up on their own two feet. That's the tachlis. That's the ultimate goal of giving. To give to the point that the other can rise up on their own and stand up um, independently and, and, and confidently. This is true for education, mentoring. This is true for, um, for any area in life. And it's certainly true in parenting. The goal of parenting is to create, not create, is to is to raise, literally we use the same word, is to raise, right? Raise children who can stand up into adults that can stand up on their own two feet. The greatest nachas, the greatest joy and the, the greatest pleasure of a parent is to see their child making good decisions, confidently knowing who they are and walking on their own, in their own path. That's the greatest pride and joy of a parent. That the Child should oh, that, the, that that your child should always need you. That's called codependency. That's that's an unhealthy state of being. That's codependency. If somebody wants, if a parent wants their child to always need them, that's uh, that's a um, that's a that's not healthy. That's not the healthiest scenario. The goal of a parent. That's you know what that is. That's the story of the giving tree. Shel Silverstein, as I've taught before in various classes. Shel Silverstein's story about the giving tree is about a tree who needs to give to the little boy or else the tree feels bad. That's not parenting. That's codependency, straight up. That's codependency. Codependency means I need you to need me. That I need you to need me or else I have a gaping hole in my, in my life, in my heart, in my soul. That's not the healthy framework of parenting. Healthy framework of parenting is the parent is okay. They're okay. And they want their child to be okay. To be confident, independent, right? Educated. They should have their own visions, their own dreams. The child should be okay on their own. That's the goal of parenting. That's what God tells Aaron. Aaron HaKohen, Aaron the high priest, the Kohen Gadol. He tells him, Light the candles, not light the candles, raise the flames. Ad shetehei shalheves oila me'eleha. Until the flame of the other rises on its own. That's when you know you've succeeded. When you can step away and they're still okay, that means you did a good job. If when you step away, they fall apart, you haven't given them the tools to succeed. You know you've given them the tools to succeed. 
that you can step away and things will still be okay. That's the goal. It's also the goal of delegating. It's, the, it's so many things. Creating independence is such a powerful concept. All right. I hope this makes sense. Yes? Thumbs up? Yes? Sort of? Okay. Perfect. All right. Let's jump back inside. Oh, look at this. We're not done yet with this Rashi. Rashi gives a second interpretation about why lighting is called Bahaloscha when you rise up or when you cause to rise up. Listen to this. Our sages further expounded from here that there was a step in front of the menorah on which the coin stood to prepare the lamps. There was literally a step in front of the menorah that the coin would have to climb on to prepare the lamps and to light them. You with me on this? This is another reason why lighting is called raising because the coin or the, the one lighting the menorah, preparing the menorah, had to step up, had to rise up to light physically because there was a step. Which, again, every word in these Rashis, it's like, it's, it's, it's a whole fabrengen. So here we go. Oftentimes we think, that if we extend ourselves to help someone else out, then it's going to take away something from us. So let's speak very practically. If I give someone of my money, I have less money. Gavald, that's not good. If I give someone my time, I have less time. That's not good. If I give someone my emotional energy, I have less emotional energy. That's not good. If I take my time to teach someone else Torah, I'll have less time to learn on my own. Gavalt, that's not good. That's what somebody might think. And you know, if you, if you consult, I don't know, um, uh, uh, someone that's you know, basing something on, on, on measurable facts or whatever it is, you would say yes. If you start off with $100 and you give 10 away, you have 90. It's a zero-sum game. You gave away some, you have less. It's the way it is. You have 24 hours in the day. You gave two hours away to someone. You have 22 hours left for yourself. You gave that away. So seemingly, it's, it makes sense. And it's true. It's measurable. But we know it's not true. And the reason why it's not true is because there's another force at play. And we call that force God. Because Hashem, God Almighty, wants us to be there for the other. He didn't create us isolated, in a vacuum, on our own, vacuum sealed in our own pods. He created us as companions on this journey called life. And God wants nothing more than for us to help each other on our collective and individual journeys. Again, God wants nothing more than for us to help each other. And when we do... We are blessed in absolutely infinite ways. So when we give of our money, the Talmud says, straight up, it's not even Kabbalah, not even mysticism. The Talmud says, when you give tzedakah, you're going to get more back. It's guaranteed. In fact, the Talmud says, God tells us, test me, try me out. Try, test me. Give and you'll see. You'll get, you're going to get more than you gave. When it comes to time, here we may have to lean on a little Kabbalah and Chassidus. You give away your time, the work that would have required whatever X number of hours, you will be able to get done in a short amount of time. The learning, the Rebbe said this countless times, the learning 
your own Torah learning that you that would have taken 10 hours, but you you taught for two hours, you will get more learning done in the eight hours that you have left. You will get way more learning done in that time than you would have ever gotten in the 10 hours. Why? Because God will make sure, God will make sure that you are not left hanging, that you're not left missing. And this is what Rashi is alluding to when Rashi talks about the step. When, it co- when you take your time to, to light someone else's lamp, are you with me on the, on the analogy? When you take your time, your energy, your know-how, your, your wisdom, your, your compassion, and you take that time and, and talents to, light, to be attentive to someone else's lamp, I'm going to light your lamp and your lamp and your lamp. You're not sinking yourself. You're not taking a step down. You're only taking a step up. There was a step in front of the menorah to indicate, again, on a deeper level, there's obviously on a deeper, you know, psychological, spiritual level. When you, when you light that menorah, when you kindle someone else's flame, you're not getting, you're not getting struck down, God forbid. You're getting elevated. You are getting elevated in the process. Not only are they getting elevated, that's a given, but you're also getting, you're also rising in the process. Not only are the flames rising, that's the first interpretation of Rashi. Make sure the flames rise. Good. That's great. But you're also going to rise. Take a step up. Take a step up on that platform because you will also rise in this process. Um, I cannot tell you how many times the Rebbe shared this concept. Never believe, never think that by helping someone else, you're going to lose. You will never lose. It's It's not possible. It's not possible. You're only going to gain by helping someone else out. Again, financially, intellectually, academically, uh, Torah, um, emotionally, psychologically, it doesn't matter. Whatever level. You help someone, you're going to gain. You're going to step up. Okay, so that's, uh, that's Rashi. Let's go back inside. Toward the face of the menorah. I shared this with you before. What does that mean that you light the flames uh, toward the face of the menorah? Toward the middle lamp. Again, Moving over to this image, middle lamp would be the center stem. That means all of the others are faced. You put the wick, you put it toward the middle to face the center lamp. Which is not one of the branches, but on the menorah itself. It's not not branching out from the center. It is the center, as we saw in the picture. Shall cast their light. The six on the six branches, the three eastern ones, that is... Their wicks facing towards the center one. And likewise, the three western ones, the tops of their wicks facing toward the center one. Why were the wicks facing inwards, thus giving up so little light? It's a good question. Right? If you turn, if you move the wicks, I mean, how much of a difference does it make? But if you're moving them toward the middle, it means that you're almost consolidating the light. You're not... You would think maybe it should spread. It should be pointing. Should be pointed outward. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Imagine. Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's like I was thinking of, like a router, a Wi-Fi router. We probably all have a router in our home, even if we don't know what that word means, right? A router is basically when you have internet in your home. So the internet comes in through wires, through some sort of, you know, wire, typically a wire connection. And then you can disseminate 
or I don't know what the right word is, deliver that internet to multiple um, to multiple devices that are not plugged in through a router. So if you're using an iPad or a laptop that's not plugged in to the internet, to the wall, to an ethernet cable, so you're using a router. Now a router, many routers have these little antennas. Well, if you want your Wi-Fi to work a little bit better, again, I don't know how much of a difference it makes, but at least a little bit better, you wanna optimize your, the possibility to get Wi-Fi at a larger range, so you take the antennas and you kind of fan them pointing outward from the router, not in, not, not inward, you don't collapse it on itself. You open up the antennas to kind of spread the Wi-Fi, spread the love. So Rashi asks over here again, says we're on this, we're on this page though, why were the wicks facing inwards, thus giving off so little light? Why did you fold in the wicks? Why not disperse it? Rashi gives an answer. So that people should not say that God needs the light. The point is that you don't want to give off the impression that it was a dark room. Remember, this is, where was the menorah? The menorah was not in the outer courtyard. It was in the Mishkan building. It's a covered, small, covered tent building. Um, and so there were no windows. So where did they get the light? Okay, oh, they had a menorah. Fabulous. What? Is God afraid of the dark? Why do you need a menorah? Why do you need the menorah there? Because God needs the light. God doesn't need the light. There's no darkness to, you know, um, that can stand in the way of God. So it's not for God. It's symbolic. It's symbolic. So that, that symbolism is enhanced. The fact that the wicks weren't being fanned out to maximize the light, it was more about um, uh, the symbol of, of the menorah giving light. All right. Aaron did so. Rashi says, this shows Aaron's virtue, that he did not deviate from God's command. Aaron did so. Of course, the question is, why would you think that he would? Like, were we suspicious that Aaron would deviate, that the Torah has to tell us that Aaron did so? And Rashi says, ah, he, Aaron is such a, good, such a good boy, he didn't deviate from God's command. Why would he? Why, why would he? All right, that itself, we need more commentaries on Rashi. I, I know the question, and I'm trying to remember the answer. Some, one, of, some, one of the answers it's given. It's not coming to me right now, but if anybody uh, wants to look that up and, uh, and, and share in the, in the honor of coming up with that answer, feel free to do so. All right, uh, text number four. This was the form of the menorah. As God, Rashi says, as God had shown him, shown Moses, with his finger. For he had difficulty with constructing it. That is why it says, this is. This is, when, whenever we use the word this, or in Hebrew, zeh, this means you can point with your finger. This. What's the difference between this and that? This is here. That is not here. Because if that was here, it would be this. So you say, this day is today. That day is another day. Right? This computer or that computer. This you point right here. That you point out there. So when the Torah says, Vizet, Ma'iseh HaMenorah, this was the form of the menorah, it means that God showed him. This, this, right here. God showed him with his finger. Not that his finger was a menorah, but God like, said, like this, like this right here. Let's get, and I want to share something that I believe Ray has shared before. Uh, I'll share that soon. Hammered work in Old French, whatever, beaten, an expression similar to 
and his knee knocked uh, one against the other. Um, there was a block of gold weighing a talent. I believe a talent is, from my recollection, 64 pounds, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. There was a block of gold, a very heavy block of gold. He pounded it with a hammer and cut it with a chisel to extend its limbs in the prescribed manner. And it was not made limb by limb and then connected together. It was not um, um, fused together. Welded, that's what it was. It was not welded together, it was hammered out of one piece. From its base to its flower, its base was the hollow box above the, above the legs, like the silver candelabra that stand before nobles. Again, let's go back here. The base would be right here. If you look at Rashi's, again, Rashi's, not Rashi. Maimonides, Rambam's depiction of the menorah. This is literally, and I, th I mentioned this before, this is literally a hand-drawn sketch of Maimonides on the right side. That's the sketch of Rambam. And you see the base is a semicircle. The way it's depicted in this model that somebody made apparently, um, it looks like it's uh, the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. So they have this base. And Rashi's point is, inside the base, it was hollow. It wasn't a solid gold piece. It was curved. It was hollowed out. Back inside, from its base to its flower, that is to say the menorah itself and everything attached to it. That's what I said before. From its base to its flower means A to Z. The whole nine yards. From the base to its most external design, it was all hammered out of one piece of gold. From its base, which was the large, which was a large unit, to its flower, which was its finest work. It was all hammered work. From something that required less precision, a base, big base, you don't have to like, to the thing, to the element that required the most precision, right? Making a beautiful flower out of that gold. Um, it was all done from the same piece. It is customary to, um, to use the word ad until um, or to in the sense to include everything. Okay, fine. According to the form which the Lord had shown, according to the design, God had shown him, Moses, on the mountain of Mount Sinai, as it says, now see and make according to their pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So he, uh, so did he construct a menorah? That means the one who did it, the one who made it, the one who made it, name of B'tzalel, says Rashi. The God of Midrash states that it was made by itself. Oh, look at this. So did he construct a menorah. Who's he? So simple meaning is B'tzalel, the, the chief contractor of the Mishkan. But a, another explanation, the, the, the Agadic Midrash in Tanchuma, Midrash Tanchuma says that it was made by itself through the Holy One, blessed be he, through God. So now you're wondering, wait, who made the menorah? Bottom line, who made it? Did Moses, B'tzalel, God, who made it? So what's clear is that God showed Moses. Moses conveyed it to B'tzalel and somehow in between all those parties, it got made. But there is one source and one insight that can kind of tie all these points together. Moses got the commandment to get to Betzal. Betzal tried. They gave it the old college effort. And they got some done. But it wasn't, it wasn't fully done. So they ended up throwing it into a fire. I forget which fire. It might have been like a special fire, whatever it was. And out came the menorah, the finished product. Which begs the question, 
if God was going to finish it anyway, so then why did they have to start it? If God was going to, if it was too hard ultimately for people to do, for human craftsmen to do, so then why, um, why even start? Why not just God should have said, okay, here's a menorah, make everything else. The answer is, one of the answers at least, is that when it comes to our avoda, our work, and this is a theme that we've said many times, that I've shared countless times. When it comes to our work, there's two elements. The work that we do and the outcome. We don't control the outcome. Sometimes we work hard, we make the right choices, and everything falls apart. We did everything we were, we did everything we were required, everything that we wanted to do, and still didn't go. Didn't, didn't end up successful. Sometimes we do no work and it's successful. And so a person might think, okay, so then I'm not going to do anything and whatever happens, happens. No. We have to do what we have to do. I spoke about this in the Torah studies class, I don't know, last week or two weeks ago. Loy Alecha is one of my favorite uh, teachings in Pirkei Avot. Lo Alecha Hamalacha Ligmar. You don't have to finish the job. But you can't, therefore, desist from starting it. You, let me just say this in my own words, you have to start it. Whether it's going to get finished, whether you're going to finish it, God knows. But you have to start it, and then the rest will get figured out. Either you or God or someone else. It's going to get figured out, but you have to get it started. And that's the message here with the menorah. Did Moses, but Sal, did they finish it? According to one tradition, no. So then why they start it? Because that's how life is. You have to start, even though you can't. You know, I talked about uh, raising children before. You know, with all of the expertise and all the know-how and all of the books and the seminars and the, and the videos and the podcasts and, and Torah's wisdom, with all of the above, the bottom line is, it takes a lot of siyata deshmai. It takes a lot of help from above. That's it. We could do everything on our end. I'm not going to say everything right, because who could do everything right? It's impossible. No one does everything right. But we can put in all the effort. We can try all the strategies in the world. And ultimately, ultimately it's, uh, it's a blessing from above. Of course, it's, we're dealing with another human being, so they have free choice. Obviously, the child has choice. Hashem's help. That's what the menorah message is teaching us. You have to get it started. Start hammering away. And when you're schwitzing, you're like, I don't know how this is going to work. God says, you know what? I'll take it to the finish line. But you had to get started. You had to get the job started. You don't have to finish it. But you can't not start it. You have to start it. Okay, back inside. Back inside. The menorah is always a great topic. Okay, back inside, and we're going to shift away from the conversation about the menorah to a new topic. Now the Lord spoke to Moses. Before God spoke to Moses, telling him to tell Aaron a bunch of things about the menorah. Now God says, God speaks to Moses, the following. Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. That doesn't mean physically, it means spiritually, although it also is going to involve something physical, but it means cleanse them. This is what you shall do to them so as to cleanse them. 
In other words, the, the objective is a spiritual um, result, but the process involves some physical uh, uh, steps. Um, sprinkle them with cleansing water, okay, and pass a razor over all their flesh. Then, then they shall, well, no, that doesn't mean, um, that means give me a haircut, a very thorough haircut, cut off all their hair. Um, it doesn't mean a razor, like, harm them, God forbid. It means shave all their hair. Then they shall wash their garments and cleanse themselves. Okay? We're going to do Rashi's on all these. So we're going we're to go through a few verses and go back to Rashi. Then they shall take a young bull with its meal offering of fine flour mingled with oil. And you shall take a second young bull as a sin offering. You shall bring the Levites in front of the tent of meeting, that's in front of the Mishkan building, and you shall gather the entire congregation of the children of Israel. You shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands upon the Levites. Smicha. Then Aaron shall lift up the Levites as a waving before the Lord on behalf of the children of Israel, that they may serve in the Lord's service. This is describing how the Levites were inaugurated into service. The Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the, of the bulls and make one as a sin offering and one as a burnt offering to the Lord to atone for the Levites. You shall present the Levites before Aaron and his sons, the Kohanim, and lift them as a waving before the Lord. Thus shall you set apart the Levites from the midst of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall become mine. So this is a ritual that involves sprinkling of cleansing water, shaving off their hair, uh, cleaning their garments in themselves, probably in a mikvah, um, bringing a young bull, two young bulls, as offerings along with a meal offering, um, doing some hand leaning as well as waving, and uh, ultimately being given over in the service of the temple of the Mishkan and, and in the service of the of the priests. Okay, let's do Rashi on this. Let's get some clarity on some of the ideas. Take the Levites, Rashi says, take them with words. In other words, when you tell the Levite, come, let's get you inaugurated into the service, don't grab their arm. Take does not mean hold their hand and walk them. No, it means take them with words. Kicham bidvarim. And what are the words? Tell them, you are fortunate in that you have merited to become attendants of the omnipresent. Make them feel good about their job as a levy. Again, another Fabrainen. You can, you can try to get someone to behave in a certain way in two ways. One, through physical means, and the other is by appealing to them. And God says to Moses, that the way to do this with the Levites is through appeasement. How lucky you are to be in this role. Now come, let's get you signed up. Let's get you inaugurated. Don't tell them you have to. You have to. Come here. Again, I'm just falling back. You know, once I started with education and, and parenting, I feel like that's going to be the, uh, the theme of the day. Just because now it's in my head. How do, we try, how do we educate our children? You have to with a finger wag. You must. Schlep them by the arm to shul, or how lucky you are that you have this heritage, how lucky you are, how fortunate you are to have this relationship with God. 
Torah, mitzvot, prayer. Which is more effective? You have to, right? Ooh, God's going to get you if you don't. Come here. Or how lucky you are, how fortunate we are to be part of this. I know which one sounds a little bit, to me, which one sounds more, uh, more exciting and more appealing. It's what's behind door number two. And that is kicham bidvarim. Capture them with words. Not with threats and not with force, but with words of appeasement, words of love. All right. Again, a, a major lesson in life. In any, really, in any um, relationship where, where there's a, um, where one is seeking to influence. Influence through positivity, not negativity. Through you're stirring a desire, a, a positive, healthy desire in the other person. And not through fear. Fear is a great motivator. We know this. Fear is a huge motivator. People do a lot of things driven by fear. But that's not... That's not Judaism. That's not what God wants. God wants us to be driven by fear. Come on. And I know there's a notion of fearing God. It means being in awe of God, respecting God. It's not being in fear. Being in fear? You're, you want to cower down while you, know, you want to get hit by God? That's a, that sounds very abusive. It's very unhealthy. Take him with words. You're so lucky. You guys are Levites. Oh, you're a Levite? Oh, look at you. You are, you are one lucky person. You tell a child, you're Jewish. Wow, you're lucky. Or you tell, tell the child, we're Jewish. We are so fortunate. Torah, mitzvot, we have this connection. Oh, ashrenu. How fortunate, how lucky we are. That instills a pride. You know, for, for a long time, it might be generations already. Unfortunately, parents have, uh, whether they meant it or not, they instilled in their kids a sense of the burden of Judaism. Oi, the oi of Ju- Judaism. It's like, oi, it's so this, it's so that. We have to do this, and then we have to do that, and then we must do the other. And there's Pesach and cleaning. Oi, oi, oi. We, we, we moan and groan like, like, it's, uh, you know, like, like we're being beaten by the Egyptians. And it's like, oh, Yamtiv is coming. Oh, yeah, this and oh, yeah, that and oh, yeah, the other. Oh, yeah, shul. Oh, yeah. The eyes can turn off an entire generation. The oi, somebody hears an eye. So why do, why do I want to be a part of this? Sounds terrible. Sounds brutal. Sounds torturous. See you later. Position it as something beautiful, not because of a marketing spin, but because it is. Because it is. How fortunate, how lucky we are. That's a positive spin. And that's how you inspire. Children, adults, ourselves. Okay. All right. Hopefully that makes sense. Let's jump in. Um, te- uh, read, um, sorry. Verse 7, Rashi. So how do you inaugurate after you've shared with the Levites how lucky they are? So now what, how do you get them inaugurated? So sprinkle with cleansing water, Rashi says, from the ashes of the red cow. So as to cleanse them from contamination by those who were in contact with the dead. So first things first, paraduma, red heifer water. Next, pass a razor over all their flesh. I found in the writings of Rabbi Moses Hadarshan, Rabbi Moshe the preacher, since the Levites were submitted in atonement for the firstborn, who had practiced idolatry when they worshipped the golden calf, which is called sacrifice to the dead, 
and one afflicted with sarat is considered dead, they required shaving like those afflicted with sarat. So the connection, Moshe Darshan says, connection between the Levites, the firstborn, idolatry, death, sarat, shaving. Okay? That's, that's what it, a bunch of different steps along the way. Kabbalah explains, by the way, just so you know, that the Levites, Levi, the Levites come from the realm of Gevura. Gevura being severity, sternness, severity. Kohanim are from Chesed, love. Kohen blesses with love, be Ahava, right? But a Levi, a Levite is Gevura. So Kohen, Levi, Chesed, Gevura. When it comes to Gevura, Gevura can sometimes get out of hand. Someone's Gevura, so it could be discipline, it could be boundaries, but it could be stern, and then it could be angry, and then it could be volatile. It can, it can escalate. You know, Gvura can devolve into something very ugly. And so, that's why we cut the hair of, we shaved all the hair of the Levites. Why? Because symbolically hair, it starts off, I guess, under the skin, Right, the follicles or whatever start under the skin. Let's say in the scalp, it starts like, I know it's not inside the skull, but it's like under the surface, and then it pokes its way through to the other side. It represents a breach, breach, B-R-E-A-C-H, where something starts in one place and then goes out. We don't want gvura to ever go out. It starts, gvura is healthy in and of itself, but it could, bust out in a negative way. We don't want it to bust out. So to symbolize cutting that short, as it were, um, and I was making sure that it doesn't get into a negative place, so we shave off all the hair of the Levites. That was, uh, that was the, the commandment, and according to Rashi, the symbolism. Let's continue. Not, not, sorry, not according to Rashi. According to Kabbalah, that's the symbolism. I believe what I just told you is in Lakute Torah from the, from the Altar. Let's continue. They shall take a young bull, that is a burnt offering. Okay? And a second young bull, what do you mean by second? Teaches that just as a burnt offering is not eaten, so is the sin offering not eaten. Okay? Um, you shall bring the Levites and gather the entire congregation. Why? Why do you need everybody? Since the Levites were submitted as an atonement offering instead of them, let them, the Israelites, come and stand with their offerings, namely the Levites, and rest their hands upon them. In other words, the people should have been the ones serving, the firstborn. But it got taken away. Now the Levites, so everyone should be there, kind of in this ceremony, to bestow upon the Levites this responsibility. All right, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up today's session. Um, Aaron shall lift up the Levites as a waving. Rashi says, in the same way that the guilt offering of one afflicted with Surat, leprosy again, requires waving the animal while, 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 is it alive, while it is alive. The same thing you do over here. Three wavings are mentioned in this section. The first refers to the sons of Kahat, and for this reason it states with regard to them that they may serve in the Lord's service, since they were responsible for the work involving the most holy objects, the ark, the table, the menorah, etc. I added the menorah, etc. Okay, so you have Kahat. They were waved around. Little, by the way, when it says waving, it means literally they were lifted up and moved in the different all six directions. Forward, back, right, left, up, down. Okay, so the sons of Kahat were waved. And that was how they were able to enter into, this, into the Lord's service, into carrying 
the holy um, the holy objects of the Mishkan. The second in verse thirteen refers to the sons of Gershon. Therefore, it stated with regard to them a waving before the Lord, for even they were assigned holy work, the curtains and the clasps, which could be seen in the holy of holies. This is before the Lord. The third waving was for the sons of Merari. And that is not yet in this reading. That's in verse 15. That's in tomorrow's reading. Uh, sorry, it's in the reading that we're going to do for tomorrow, which actually today's reading, but we're going to leave that for tomorrow. Okay, so in summation, in summation, we started off with some commandments, some laws, rules and regs regarding the menorah. Then we got into the inauguration of the Levites and how that was supposed to look. And all of that made sense. I want to just conclude by reiterating some of the lessons that we took from the menorah. Number one, number one, I don't know if I ever elaborate on the contemporary meaning. You know, Aaron was distressed about the, the, about, you know what, I'm going to share something else about this. A message from the Rebbe about this. Aaron looked at the Nassim, at the, at the leaders of the tribes, and said, oh, they bring all these offerings. Oh, yeah, yeah, what, do I, what am I doing? Nothing. Hashem says, you got the menorah, you got plenty. So the Rebbe explains that we fall into this trap all the time. We look at what someone else is doing, and we become a little jealous. We become a little, um, we might become a little jealous or a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, I don't know. We become jealous and, and um, not dissatisfied, but like um, despondent. Oh, I got nothing. Like what? This happens on social media also, by the way, right? One of the, one of the reasons why social media has been shown to have a negative effect on, at least certainly for young people, but, but for all ages, on, on one's, uh, you know, psychological, emotional health, one, one's wellness or mental health is because we end up trying to compare our lives with someone else. It's like, oh, they have all the, look at this, they're on vacation, I'm just here. Or look, they're, um, you know, posting, you know, meeting a celebrity and, you know, I don't, I'm not meeting a celebrity. So, you know, Aaron gets himself into trouble by comparing himself to the Nassim. Oh, they're bringing all these offerings. What do I have? God ultimately appeases him and says, you got the menorah. But in life, it's just highlighting the danger of comparing ourselves to others. Every human being is unique. No one needs to live out the life of anyone else. What did Mark Twain say? Was it Mark Twain or was it um, maybe Mark Twain? He said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Right? Everyone's got their own life. Let let them live their life. I got my life to live, right? Aaron, don't look at the Nassim. Twelve days they're bringing offerings. What am I doing? Slow it down. Let them do what they do. Don't let it. Don't let it get to you. Chol He suddenly got depressed. You have look in the mirror. Look at all the opportunities you have. And I think. You know, maybe we'll just end with this one point. I think this is one of the most important messages that we can hear today. And that is, before you look at anyone else's life, hold up a mirror, not forget a mirror, take out a pen and paper, and write down all of the blessings in your life. Write them down. Make a list. All of the blessings in your life. And then when you, when you realize you have... I don't know how many, <laughs> dozens, hundreds, thousands, whatever. When you think about all, when, when, you're, when you're focusing on all the blessings, you'll probably be less 
interested in what someone else is doing. Because look at my life. My life is amazing. We're all blessed. God says to Aaron, you got the menorah. You don't need their... They're going to do what they what they're going to do. You got this. Enjoy it. Let's appreciate what we have and not drive ourselves crazy by what someone else has. Thank you for joining me today for Daily Power Parasha. I hope this made sense. Questions or comments? Thank you. Thank you. Um, Any questions or comments? Feel free to jump in. Okay. Uh, Awesome. Pleasure. Pleasure. All right, Sarah and Olia and Faye and Ray, have a wonderful day. Um, we're back on tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel, um, at, uh, at noon for DPP. And tomorrow night is JLI, final session. Got a really great session tomorrow night. And then we got a lot of things coming up. We have um, the barbecue coming up and other fun things. Stay tuned for more announcements. All right, have a wonderful day, everybody. We'll see you guys soon. Take care, all. Bye, everybody. Rick.